Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? As a result of the riots on Capitol Hill last Wednesday, on Friday, a bunch of social media platforms have banned Trump. And after this happened, there was an onslaught of posts on various social media sites of people basically hailing this as a good decision and questioning why Facebook, Twitter, and other social media sites had not banned Trump earlier. So I've been thinking about it this week because to me, personally, it seemed I don't want to say logical or correct, but I was like, yeah, it makes sense to me that Twitter has not banned Trump. Macca released a statement in regards to Twitter blocking Trump about free speech. So I've just sort of been thinking about Trump being blocked off Twitter. Why has it taken so long? Is it a good or bad thing? And where do we go from here? Yeah, Merkel called it problematic, as did Macron. Jens Zimmermann, who's a social democrat and on the German Parliament's committee on digital agenda, said, we need to come up with regulation and we need to be careful about what power these platforms have. I think it's no surprise that Twitter came up with that solution, with 12 days to go until Donald Trump leaves office. And the same applies to Facebook. And what's really amazing is, yes, the Democrats are now in power, which means they're going to be overseeing all of those committees, similar to the one that Jens Zimmerman is on in the US that regulates digital monopolies and all that. And Facebook and Google have a monopoly on our digital communication. And they are two giant corporations which profit by selling advertising to us. And the way that they do this is by holding our attention. The way they hold our attention is by clickbaity articles, conspiratorial content. They're not bothered about fact-checking stuff, about ethics or what's happening to society. They're just worried about keeping us on their platforms for as long as possible so that they can sell us stuff. So they were responsible in a large part for what did happen with the riots because they were pushing through their algorithms and the way this technology operates. They were pushing people towards more and more conspiratorial theories, towards more extremist groups and all that kind of stuff. Survey results show that Google provided ad services to 86% of sites carrying coronavirus conspiracies. I'm not saying it's just the fault of tech because in the US... These white supremacy terrorists, there has been some debate on whether you call them terrorists or not, have existed way back, you know, with the Ku Klux Klan. And this is just another iteration of that. But Facebook and Twitter and Google have profited from Trump thus far. And now, like Zimmerman says, well, he's on his way out now anyway. They need to find new friends. And it's just a distraction that they think, or they're pushing the story that they can just ban one person. And that's going to be a solution, but it's actually not going to be a solution. I think regulation is a solution. And then the other big problem with the ban and why it's problematic, Merkel comes from the East and this falls into the realm of political censorship by corporations. So it sets a troubling precedent, right? Because if, for example, an activist or other people with other views express themselves on these platforms, where does it stop? Does some multi-billionaire white dude somewhere just make the call as to which voices should be banned and which voices 
should not. It doesn't stop the fact that many people are abused or doxxed or we've talked about this, you know, on these platforms. And as we talked about also in one of our previous episodes about misinformation and how it spreads, the platform has been responsible for other riots in the world, in Myanmar, in India. Now it's just come home. So one of the reasons why there is debate about whether or not we should refer to the people who attacked the capital as terrorists is because the worry is, is that the repercussions of this will affect communities of color. To explain this a little bit more, the Washington Post writes, In the aftermath of the violence that occurred on Wednesday, January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, news media politicians and observers worldwide are labeling those who participated domestic terrorists. At first glance, this seems to be a fair assessment. If white nationalists are engaging in the same kind of violence as other groups we call terrorists have engaged in, attacking government buildings, breaking laws, endangering citizens, damaging property, and so on and so forth, then they too should be labeled terrorists. Progressive politicians like Representative Pramila Jayapal have referred to this incident as domestic terror attacks to ensure the gravity of this violence is not downplayed, as it often is when the perpetrators are white. However, by including white supremacist violence under this label, we are effectively expanding the definition of terrorism. And although the intention is good, it harms the most marginalized communities. Black and Muslim communities have been increasingly stigmatized and harmed by counter-terrorism policies resulting from such expansions. The government already has a number of laws under which they can prosecute people that are perceived as threats. After Wednesday's insurrection, President-elect Joe Biden plans to make a priority of passing a law against domestic terrorism. Human rights attorney Diala Shamas tweeted, Predictably, Biden falls for it. I'll say it again. History shows that legislation going after domestic terrorism will primarily be used to target black organizations, Muslim communities, and immigrant communities. Shamas argues that expanding whom we call terrorists supposes that more law enforcement means more justice or fairness. This is ahistoric. She cites the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, implemented after the Oklahoma City bombing, as an example of counterterrorism policies with negative results. This attack was carried out by two white men who were labeled domestic terrorists. Instead of preventing domestic terrorists, the AEDPA broadened law enforcement's reach and allowed legal residents to be deported or jailed for minor offenses. Leah Kayali, a Palestinian community organizer and digital communications professional for the ACLU, says, Vague language doesn't invite good policy. When you create policy on vague definition, it invites law enforcement discretion. It actually provides ammunition to systems of policing and law enforcement. For many, the word terrorism will never serve a movement that seeks to shrink the power of this counterterrorism industry and protect brown, black, and indigenous people's rights. Instead, we should be focusing on dismantling this counterterrorism framework of harmful policies and rather addressing the root of the problem, white supremacy. But yeah, also on top of that, in times of an attention economy, we are Twitter and Facebook's product. So yeah, Twitter and Facebook are, I guess, free in the sense that we don't pay them any money, but we pay them with our attention. 
And of course, they were never going to ban Trump off of their platforms because the amount of money that he generated, like the amount of people who clicked on his Twitter, the amount of traffic he generated to Facebook and Twitter is ridiculous. In fact, after Facebook and Twitter banned Trump, they have collectively seen a 5.2 billion erasure from their market over the last two trading sessions as investors have backed out. So this means that Facebook lost $47.6 billion and Twitter $3.5 billion. So overall, Twitter plunged 6.4% to the start of the week and then dropped another 2.4% as the market closed on Tuesday. This is a significant drop. And considering that this is how they both make their money, keeping Trump on their platform is very lucrative for both of these companies. Yeah, I mean, they haven't banned him until, you know, conveniently, he happens to be a sitting duck and he's going to be out of power in a matter of days. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, yes, that's obviously the main reason they haven't banned him till now. And Facebook and Twitter, these big tech companies, they do not have a moral compass. They're interested in making money. They do not care about us. But I feel like this thing that happened at Capitol Hill was, I don't want to say it was different, but I think that for a lot of people, and in particular, I think for a lot of white middle-class people in the U.S., they kept going on and on and on about how this isn't America, this isn't America. And it was like, no, this is very much America. This is the foundation on which America has been built, as we will go on to a little bit later. But it was just such a, a ridiculous waking up moment, if I could use that. You know, I feel like a lot of people up until that point, these middle class white people weren't directly affected by any of the, they haven't been marginalized or oppressed in any way. So they continue to live in some sort of weird fantasy. So this was like, I don't want to say a wake up call because that's the wrong thing, but it was just like they were confronted with something. And it's kind of sad that it's taken this long for them to be confronted with the reality of their country and so many other people's reality. So I think that that actually contributed to why Twitter banned him now. But it was also like this massive part of their target audience apparently realized that they suck and there's injustice in their country. Yeah, it was a very smart move, actually, because obviously the finger was going to be pointed to social media at some point. This is how these people organize. This is why how this whole thing was able to happen. And so they kind of took control of the discussion in a way. And they also, yeah, of course, they were damage controlling everything and responding to what would have been public outrage from people who said, you know, this is not America. And they disagreed with it, even if they were Republican or whatever. But they also sort of enable that point of view of those white Americans by just being like, yeah, we'll just ban this one guy. It's just this one guy. It's just some nutty followers. It's just this social media. Like, we don't have to take a closer look at our entire society or how the whole of social media works. So it's very smart from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, they're treating it like Trump is both the symptom and the cause. Do you know what I mean? It's We'll get rid of him and then that's that taken care of. You don't have to hold a mirror up to your country and look clearly at what are the things that led to this being able to happen. I know that a lot of the outcry about Trump sort of being banned from these platforms is that this is, you know, goes against free speech. This is censorship. So I was curious just to look up what is the definition of free speech? And free speech is a principle that supports the freedom of an individual or community to articulate their opinion and ideas without fear of 
retaliation, censorship, or legal sanction. The term freedom of expression is sometimes used synonymously but includes any act of seeking, receiving, and imparting information or ideas regardless of the medium used. So freedom of expression is recognized as a human right under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and recognized in the International Human Rights Law in the International Convention of Civil and Political Rights. Article 19 of the UDHR states that everyone shall have the right to hold opinions without interference and everyone shall have the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, either orally, in written or in print, in the form of art, or through any other media of his choice. So I guess the parts of that that really stuck out to me is the idea that it's the freedom to articulate your opinion and ideas without fear of retaliation, censorship, or legal sanction. So I guess, according to this definition, are we censoring Trump by keeping him off Twitter? I think it's difficult because, first of all, Twitter is a company, so it doesn't actually have to abide by the First Amendment or you know free speech. But more than that, they do have also regulations on their site about inciting hate and stuff like that so you know when one right infringes upon other people's rights like the right to life and stuff when people got mobbed and all this kind of stuff then that's a problem and that's why he's been banned i guess justifiably i think the bigger problem is i mean there's a lot of hate speech on twitter and those people never get censored anyway and they i think they absolutely should but the other problem with Trump specifically is that he is the president and he's a political figure. So you're not just censoring free speech of anyone, you're censoring political opinion and then it goes into weird territory. Like I said, like what about an activist who's against the government in China or inciting riots that, I don't know, you know, you go into like really funny territory and in the end, should Twitter be deciding it? And actually, no. I think it's interesting that Merkel said that it's problematic because actually in Germany, certain things are censored. You just cannot say certain things. Um, you cannot have certain symbols like the swastika. The neo-Nazis are not allowed to have a neo-Nazi party and step into parliament. The AFD is still something different. So I guess there is a time to ban people and take a really strong action against people and their ideas and what's kind of been bothering me about and not just me Roxanne Gay wrote a really great opinion in the New York Times about this and this kind of idea of well now is the time to unite and we have to understand these people and we have to employ our empathy and understanding no I don't think we do at all because these are dangerous people with dangerous ideas there is no uniting or empathy and you could see a lot of this empathy stuff just being, or this excusing or this enabling kind of dialogue being thrown around everywhere since Trump got voted in. Since Trump got voted in, all scientists have been saying is, oh, look, it's the fault of the, the people on the Rust Belt, the poor people, blah, blah, blah. Those were not the people who actually flew in, went to Washington, D.C., took a day off work to go and do this. They were mostly middle-class Americans. They were lawyers. There were a lot of off-duty police officers. There was the son of an elected judge in Brooklyn. There were people from the suburbs. Jacob Chansley, aka Jacob Angeli, the shirtless rioter with the painted face and horns, 
he reportedly, I don't know if this is true, hasn't eaten since his arrest because there was no organic food in jail. One woman even flew in on a private jet. So all of these arguments that, you know, these are people who have less power and less money, you know, due to the way that American society has developed is just excusing this behavior. Analysts have found that Trump performs actually particularly well with voters with high incomes. And a lot of Trump voters aren't really generally struggling economically, even though they did feel anxiety about their status. Basically, these are middle class people. And they think that they're losing power and they're not used to things not going their way. Like everyone said, it's just white privilege on display. I think this idea that the people who went to the storm on Capitol, that they were all working class people, that's such a classist idea. Because I think that a lot of the rhetoric around it was that, oh, these people are stupid or they're uneducated. When looking at all the facts that you just mentioned, no, these aren't stupid or uneducated people. Also, who are you to assume that people who are working class are stupid and uneducated? That's a very elitist sort of point of view. So there are direct links between what happened at the Capitol and history. There's a really interesting article on Vox where they talk about the history of the Ku Klux Klan and what it can teach us about the Capitol riots. And it's an interview with Linda Gordon, who wrote The Second Coming of the KKK. And she traces basically the history of the KKK through the ages. And she says one of the parallels is that in the 1920s, the Klan also believed in conspiracy theories. So, for example, one of the theories that they had at that time, because a lot of Catholic immigrants were coming into the country... And they thought it was not just because they were poor and looking for a better life, but because the Pope had ordered them to come. And once they came, they were supposed to go underground, awaiting the time when the Pope would come to give them the order for a coup that would take over the American government and establish the United Catholic States of America. That's in line with this one from QAnon right now, which believes that Hillary Clinton is operating a massive child abuse sex ring without any evidence. And then the other parallel is actually the people who belonged to the KKK, there was quite a high initiation fee, like it was $125, I think. They were also very middle class. You could see it in the pictures of all the women. They used to eat sandwiches and stuff where they watched lynchings. I mean, it was not poor, disenfranchised, stupid, marginalized white people. It was professionals, business people especially law enforcement officials, and we see exactly the same thing today. We also see some of the same behaviours and symbolism. So the Ku Klux Klan, they used to dress up. They used to dress up as minstrels, as clowns, and famously as ghosts, you know, with the stupid white costume. And you could see that also with all of these pictures of people dressing up as Vikings and blah, blah, blah. That kind of functions in two ways. One is that all of these symbols and these costumes mean something symbolically in this imaginary world that these white supremacists have built all of their myths on. It's a massive myth, by the way, that the Vikings were the true white race. They were actually very multiracial. There's a few articles about the fact that the Vikings very happily traded with the Arabs and like coins from the Middle East were found all through Viking settlements. The myth of the Vikings being really a pure white race only came in the 19th century with romantic German nationalism and this idea of the folkish movement, which was interested in historical narratives that bolstered this white German nation state and also 
in the U.S., this myth has reiterated itself. So there's this idea or this myth of Vinland, which is that the Vikings came to North America a long time ago, which actually that did happen. There is archaeological evidence for a Viking presence in North America, but they left pretty quickly. But the white supremacists kind of use this as proof that this is their land and, you know, it's being taken away from them. And there's just such a hysteria about things being taken away from them. But it's interesting, this dressing up thing, because it does two things. It first of all is a language that can be decoded by people who are also white supremacists, and that points to this kind of mythical past, and it's a story that's being told. And on a political level, it offers kind of a cover for their political allies to dismiss them as unserious. So, for example, the Republicans or other Trump supporters can be like, or financial backers, other policemen, whatever, they can dismiss them as a group of jokers, basically. But it's not. It's really serious what they were doing. The guy who was in Nancy Pelosi's office had those those plastic ties that, you know, you can make arrests with and stuff. So it's conceivable that if she was there or if he had come across anyone, like a lot of those people who were moving through that building with a military precision and who knew actually where certain offices were and stuff like that. They were really serious about what they were doing. So to dismiss them as a bunch of just really stupid, lower class, uneducated, fooling around people just takes away from the actual violence and seriousness of this entire episode. The whole Viking thing is super interesting in particular to regards to our episode that we did about the myth of the West, because we talk about sort of similar themes about how constructing this history retrospectively sort of makes us all feel like, you know, there's this rich history of Europe that we all belong to, and thus all of these things are part of our history, and we are the natural inheritance of all things good and right in the world. So, you know, it's a tool of white supremacy, basically. But it sort of reminded me of how not just along with a tale of the Vikings, also the the Nazis also sort of continued with this stereotype of the witch. If you've ever looked at a lot of German or European depictions of the witch, they tend to have a lot of anti-Semitic traits. Now, obviously, there are a lot of witch stories that predate the Nazis, but they all sort of have this common thread through them. And particularly during the Nazi time, the stereotype came up a lot and is still present nowadays in a lot of our writing and literature, all you have to do is look at Roald Dahl's The Witches, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Also, if you didn't know, Roald Dahl was a known anti-Semite. But yeah, so just this idea of just like history being created retrospectively, I think that one of the things that one saw a lot at this storming of the Capitol was the Confederate flag, or what is generally considered to be the Confederate flag by everyone. But actually... This flag, if you don't know which one I'm talking about, it's the red one with the blue cross on it, with the stars in it. And this is actually the Confederate battle flag. And it is not the official flag of the Confederate States of America, the CSA. It was proposed, but it was rejected. And this is a flag that was only used during the Civil War. However, in modern day context, the Confederate battle flag has sort of made a reappearance in a response to the civil rights movement and the passage of federal civil rights laws in the 1950s and 60s. And it's a flag that is closely associated with white nationalists and white supremacist movements. 
But yeah, nowadays this flag is associated with this idea of pride in Southern heritage and in historical commemoration, when in reality it's a glorification of the Civil War and celebrating the myth of the lost cause and just racism and slavery and segregation and white supremacy and all those really truly terrible things. The history of the South was preserved by a group of women many, many years after the Civil War ended and they pushed it to popularity. So a lot of the monuments, statues that you have in the South were not erected during the Civil War. They were erected 200 years later by women trying to change history. I mean, with the confederacy flag and everything that came before there's just this idea with this group of people that this country belongs to them and that it's somehow being taken away from them and i kind of believe that they're truly convinced of this but they're also they can't have it both ways they can't say well we believe in democracy in the united states of america and then go and be totally undemocratic There's no logic in what they're doing one way. They're saying, well, recount the votes and, you know, those votes count when they're for our side. And then on the other side, they're saying, well, the votes have been counted, but we discredit those votes. I think what I'm trying to say is that this group of white people seem to genuinely believe that everything is for them. Nobody could have said it better. It's just white privilege on display. I also feel like this fear they seem to have that they always say they're going to become a minority in their country or whatever is basically them inadvertently acknowledging that it's not that great to be a minority or a marginalized group in America because, you know, they're afraid of being treated the way they've treated other people. This like dichotomy of Democrats or Republicans or white supremacy and not white supremacists, however you want to phrase it, is such an odd one to me. I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. I just feel like it's such a convenient rhetoric. And you heard it said by so many people, including the president-elect Joe Biden, being like, this is not us and we need to unify. And I feel like that's making the problem worse because you're not even looking at the problem. Like you're not staring it in the face. You're not acknowledging that this isn't a case of us versus them. This is a massive problem and it always has been. And the fact that like these people very clearly thought that they would be successful. There was a member of the American Olympic team who wore his Olympic jacket to the storming of the Capitol. None of them wore masks, not for corona reasons, but very few of them wore masks for concealing their identity. They very proudly took photos and posted on social media. There was such a clear sense of victory. Some of them looked genuinely shocked that they were arrested, which just shows what a bubble of self entitlement they lived in or like the there were people who were like being interviewed right outside and they were crying about their election being lost i mean they just couldn't take the fact that trump had lost there was a really funny meme that said trump just threw a massive tantrum basically and incited a riot because he couldn't take losing don't ever tell me that women are too emotional for office And on that note, here are our three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, keep in mind that social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter did not do this out of the kindness of their heart. Facebook does not have a moral compass and they do not care about politics. They care about money. Thing two, and this is from Linda Gordon from the Vox article, 
And she says, we cannot rely simply on the law to stop white supremacy, to find them, to stop them, to convict them. People really need to become louder and more active in defending the values of democracy and freedom and civil liberties and anti-racism. Whether they do that just by the way they talk or whether they have demonstrations in the street. I hope that what just happened may ultimately be a force that's going to bring people together and understand the importance of making a very, very, very public stand for what are American values, and I would argue good values for everyone, to support. Thing three, and this is inspired by the Instagram account No White Saviors. Go give them a follow if you don't already. We need to start having conversations with our nearest and dearest and our family and our racist aunts. Because if you just block them on various social media platforms, guess who they're going to turn to? So it is our responsibility to look at our family and be like, I need to have a conversation with my terrible uncle about this. Because otherwise, he's going to get misinformation and disinformation from Facebook. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent nonprofit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.